Now boarding on track number eight is train number one, the All Aboard Podcast, your excursion into transportation excellence, and I'm your conductor, Phil Bell, PB Crisp, Mr. 645, your highly trained rail enthusiast, and as always, I hold the E. Hunter Harrison Chair at the Bell Institute for Advanced Railroad Studies, where there are no degrees because the learning never ceases. And I wanted to point out a little bit about that intro that we have every day, especially because I'm wearing my, and make sure I get this right here, my EIB t-shirt and my EIB Excellence in Broadcasting. That's Rush Limbaugh. And last week was Rush Limbaugh's birthday. Uh, he would have been, I believe, 73 years old if he was with us. And I love Rush Limbaugh. And I'm not just a fan of him because I'm a conservative Republican, which obviously I am. Uh, he and I agreed, you know, on just about everything on politics. But the thing I love the most about Rush and what is very, very relevant to us here at the All Aboard podcast is the fact that learning never ceases. That's why I include that in my intro, just like public policy and politics, that's something that's always going. When it comes to railroading, that is something where there's always more knowledge to be gained. I remember when I was a kid, you know, and just like most of you do, because you're very proud when you learn something and you can speak authoritatively, especially on something that a lot of people don't fully understand, uh, you kind of goes to your head. And you say, well, look, I'm a know-it-all. I, I can tell the difference between an SD45 and an SD45-2. I, I know why this is the what the E means in SD45-T-2E if it's a Southern Pacific locomotive. And I know how that's different from SD60E on the Norfolk Southern. Um, the thing about it is there is so much to railroading. And you could even think that the reason why that designation was created could mean one thing by the guy who first decided to use it and something completely different by the time you get to the folks in the shop who are fully filling out the blue cards. So what I encourage you to do and the reason why we have the All Aboard podcast is because we want to make sure as much of that knowledge gets out there as possible and that you as rail enthusiasts or rail employees, railroad investors, public policy folks that are making rules and laws related to railroading, that you also take that same attitude and are willing to continue learning as much as you can about this great thing that God has blessed us with. And I truly believe it is a blessing that we have railroading. Um, I don't know where I would be without it. And I know just so much of our nation uh, means the same thing. So let's get on with it. Uh, before we go too much further, though, I want to give one more shout out to El Rushbo. As you know, I'm a big BlackBerry guy. I've had my BlackBerry for a long time. I had it for six years. Before that, I had a couple of iPhones. And before them, I had another BlackBerry. But I did this. I did something that would have made El Rushbo proud. I got the Black uh, BlackBerry. got the iPhone 15 Pro Max. I said, I want one that you can see from space, and I have one that you can see from space. There you go. It's all the people who've been giving me uh, a lot of trouble over the years for being so supposedly behind the times. I want to let you know that phone lasted for six years, number one, at, but the iPhone is a very, very good piece of equipment. I'm glad to have it, and you all uh, who follow this podcast and also follow us at allthingstrains.com. Uh, we'll get to see some of it because we will be making sure to do everything we can to share a lot of good pictures from uh, this iPhone and, of course, our famed film cameras, which 
damn sure aren't going anywhere. Now, the second thing I want to do is encourage you, go over to allthingstrains.com. Start your day at allthingstrains.com. And I know a lot of you like to get up and you get on Instagram and you say, oh my gosh, look, there's some e-thoughts. I want to look at the e-thoughts. Don't look at the e-thoughts first thing uh, in the day. Go over to All Things Trains, see the latest news, make some comments, and go over to our chat GP50 forums where you can talk with other rail enthusiasts, railroaders, and otherwise about this industry and take a lot of the conversation that you're having, whether it's surrounding this podcast, in some of the forums on Facebook and otherwise, and take it to a place that's uniquely built for railroaders, rail fans, and otherwise. The next thing I'd like to do is take you to what we will be doing this coming Saturday and Sunday, which is January 20th and 21st. Train show season is back in full force again, and we will be at Greenberg's Great Train and Toy Show in Richmond. This will be right by the Richmond Raceway Complex, 600 Laburnum Avenue in Richmond, and we are going to have an amazing set of uh, of inventory out there for you. Lots of Railroadiana. It's going to be everything from picture collages to old advertisements that have been framed from National Geographic and otherwise. We've even got plenty of employee timetables, uh, public timetables, and we have a great set of train magazines. So everything from InScale to Model Railroader to trains, we're lucky to get some of that uh, the other day. So it's going to be a lot of fun, and we want to make sure that we get it in your hands. Also, stay tuned to the all, to allthingstrains.com and also this podcast, because we will be having the belated, and I know it is belated because I've been talking about it for a while, but introduction of our 2024 calendars. Now, before we go too much further, for those of you who are the you know, I've got to have my calendar in September and start marking it up and so forth. I know you've already got your calendar, but guess what? And you guarantee, I can guarantee you, you're going to need a second one. Ours is the best. There is no railroad calendar that's anywhere close. A lot of you guys make them. They're great. I'm sure they're awesome, but none of them are as good as all things trains because we have over 40 images, 40 full color images in there. And we are one of the few calendars that has CSX's heritage units uh, included as well. So most calendars, as you know, they go to press early. But part of the reason why ours is coming out late is because I wanted to get at least one CSX heritage unit there because that's something that most rail enthusiasts have been looking for for a long time. So we did it. So come on out and see us. Greenberg's Great Train and Toy Show. I'll show you this one more time. It'll be 10 a.m. to 4 p.m on Saturday and Sunday, January 20th and 21st, 600 East Laburnum Avenue in Richmond. The cost to enter is $12. But if you come up to our table, the All Things Trains table, and you say to any any of us, and there'll be several of us over there, including me, you say, all aboard. Say all aboard. That's the special code. You'll get 20% off your entire purchase. No questions asked. So the special code, all aboard. I'm not going to put it on the uh, in the description. I'm not going to put it in the graphics because I want you to listen to this show and you know it. It's all aboard. And before we go any further, I want you to do one more thing. It is hit the like button and subscribe. Now, I know a lot of you, we were talking about the e-thoughts earlier. You go and you double tap. Oh, yeah. Hey, look, you're, you're really high. I, okay. I, I do it too. I admit it. But I want you to like 
and subscribe to this channel because that helps us get out on YouTube, Rumble, and all the audio podcasts and more people will hear this message and then that means we will have more ability to share information with you, travel around, see a lot of these trains in person, and talk to more people about that so we can give you the best content. And hey, liking and subscribing is free. It's El Freebo, as El Rushbo might say. So, moving on to some more railroad news. I want to talk about, go back to a little something we talked about in episode nine, and this is Parallel Systems, uh, applica- excuse me, the application of Genesee and Wyoming's railroads, Georgia Central Railway, and the Heart of Georgia Railroad. They have submitted applications to the Federal Railroad Administration, which is a railroad safety regulator, to do a pilot of parallel systems autonomous train technology. Now, you recall back in Episode 9, we talked extensively about what parallel systems is doing. And as you see here, I'll put it on the screen one more time, that's a Mars container a regular shipping container, it looks like it's a 53-footer, that is mounted on top of one of Parallel Systems' autonomous trains. Now, to be clear, I am a little bit old school in that I'm not a fan of any autonomous vehicle anywhere. What I do like about what Parallel Systems is doing is, first of all, they're being innovative, and that is absolutely something that we need to do there's what I like. I love my E units and my F units and so on. But the reality is we've always got to be developing new technology and making sure that railroading continues to uh, move forward. That's critical. Um, So I like the fact that they're innovating, number one. And I love the fact that this could give railroads the ability to compete more on a truckload basis. Because as we've talked about, most of the folks who ship freight back and forth do not ship it in volumes large enough to fill a railroad car. So therefore, having the ability to say, well, we need to move a thousand widgets from point A to point B within the next 15 hours. And a thousand widgets would be just about enough to fit into a 53-foot trailer or a 53-foot, excuse me, it's not 53 feet. Uh, It's, I believe it's about 48 feet because there's several feet that you have for the tractor. Uh, 53 feet is the total that you can have with the tractor. No, it is 53 feet. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When When I overthink, I apologize, but it is a 53 foot long trailer. Uh, you know, just enough to fill that cubic space. Well, you can't fit it, you can fit it into a rail car, but it would be uneconomic, but you could fit it into something like this. And the result would be the ability to harness more of that, which means more revenue opportunities for rail and a much more stiff competition with trucking. So, uh, and yes, is my Penn Central mug. That is filled today with uh, Maker's Mark 46 and Ginger Rail. And since I'm not actually railroading right now, I don't need to follow Rule G. I do recommend Maker's Mark 46. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, the reason why I like to talk about what Parallel Systems is doing is because they are kind of on the vanguard of where innovation is going. And what's interesting here is we are going to see a collision between the mother may I culture that comes from regulators. And that's what regulators do is they're there because there's a general assumption that whoever they're regulating is either has either acted poorly in the past or without supervision might be prone to do it. So even if you have a technology that comes along that says, okay, we can make 
a trip safer. We can put more freight on the rails and get it off the highway so the highways are more fluid for cars. If it's environment uh, better for the environment, to the extent the environmental wackos say it, uh, it will create jobs and so on. Regulators, even if all those things are true, their typical posture is to say no because they were placed in that area for the purpose of stopping what many believe would be overreached by the private sector or somebody who needs supervision. On the other hand, when you look at Silicon Valley, who's incredibly responsible for everything you see here, even though, of course, I hate big tech and we'll be having a new podcast to talk about uh, that, the I Hate Big Tech podcast. But um, Silicon Valley is so great because it is permissionless innovation, not a mother may I culture. And permissionless innovation has given rise to so much, so it will be interesting to see what happens when the Silicon Valley culture of permissionless innovation, and remember, the Parallel Systems guys did come from SpaceX, which is very much a Silicon Valley company. When that collides with the mother may I regulatory culture that has overseen railroads for more than a century, the outcome will be very interesting, and we are certainly going to keep you posted on that here at the All Aboard Podcast. And in addition, we will have a link in the bio. Uh, excuse me, a link in the description where you can go to this article as well as episode nine and listen to that once again. Now, moving over to another rail trade journal, in this case, Progressive Railroading. Uh, the Federal Railroad Administration, the same people who will be talking about uh, permissionless innovation or getting to know it, uh, they have allowed Amtrak now to begin on-track testing of their new high-speed trains, which are the Acela 2, that are based on the Avelia Liberty, which comes from Europe. Manufactured by Alstom, these trains are now three years too late. The most recent hang-up was the computer uh, testing, which apparently they did not pass, and then recently they did. So we will now see more of these trains on the Northeast Corridor undergoing their testing. We do not yet know when they will be operating, but we'll certainly get you video as we see it, because I do live and work near the Northeast Corridor line, and also because it's something that's very important to seeing how railroading will be evolving as we move from the first Acela Acela Express or Acela 1, which Amtrak calls HST in their uh, employee timetables, to the Avelia Liberty Acela 2. What I'm also looking to see is how will passengers adapt to the new equipment. You've heard on this air that the, um, not Iro, but the venture cars that are utilized out in the Midwest are very uncomfortable. They might look pretty on the outside, but they're uncomfortable because the seats are too small, the bathrooms are a little odd, and quite frankly, they're just not a very well-built or well-designed piece of equipment, at least by the standards of Bud, Pullman Standard, and American Car and Foundry. And Amtrak going this direction now, bringing Alstom into the mix, and continuing to go far, far afield from what has been done in the past, it will remain to be seen how this crowd in the Northeast, which is notoriously finicky, by the way, because once they get something, they stick with it and they like it. Uh, and that goes not just for trains, but restaurants and otherwise, how they adapt to Amtrak's Acela too. So as always, the link will also be in the description to this article. Now, let's move on to our main event, which is, as we say, the big D. And I don't mean Dallas. I don't mean Jerry Jones 
They're certainly not coming here, although who knows the way things are going. Maybe Mike McCarthy might need a second job uh, or might need a new job uh, joining me to host this podcast after that terrible performance last weekend. But the big D we're talking about here is diversification. And what is diversification? It is when a company uses its cash flow or its profits to invest in businesses outside of its core. And if you've spent any time reading uh, what I call corporate nonfiction, but corporate histories, or reading documentation from schools like Harvard and, and Tuck and otherwise, you'll find there's constantly a debate on diversification. And sometimes we have been a had a business culture that embraced diversification and you couldn't stop executives from going out as quickly as they could and plowing those profits into anything that could potentially plowing that money, actually money because it's not always profits, but plowing that money into anything that could generate a high rate of return. And a great example of that is private equity, because you could say that private equity today is very much a diversified business. Now, if you ask uh, the folks who are involved in private equity, they will call themselves asset managers and their job is to manage the assets, not so much of the business, but the assets that are entrusted to them by their investors, which will be university endowments, union pension funds, wealthy individuals, other companies, uh, regular corporate pension funds, and otherwise. So they'll say, well, our job is to manage those assets. And the way they manage them is they will buy a company whole. But in the diversification rubric, what you'll have is, say, for example, Company X, which is a railroad, and it will put its money into something like uh, chocolate which is something that happened and we'll discuss in a little bit. So that's diversification. The reason why it's a particularly hot button issue when it comes to railroading is you have a lot of entrenched interests. And I usually when we say entrenched interests, we mean that in a bad way. In this case, I don't actually mean it in a negative way, but that can be your employees. That's your suppliers. That's your regulators. That's also your customers who look out and say, well, why is it that they're taking money that could go into the railroad? It could improve track. It could buy new locomotives. It could pay employees more money. Um, why is it that they are taking that money and deciding to put it into some business that's not even related to railroads? Well, the answer for that is simple. Now, uh, and it's that you want to find the highest return. Because let's also go back before we go too far. What is the purpose of a corporation? The purpose of a corporation is to make money. It is to make as much money as possible. Now, for those of you who are liberals and for those of you who think that just sounds to be very, very callous, I want you to think about this. Rather than thinking about a corporation as being something like that, think of yourself as a corporation. And when you go to work, your goal is to make as much money as possible and to do as little work as possible. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I, I know there's a lot of people that say, oh, you know, Puritan, Puritan work ethic. You want to do as little work as possible. You want to get as much money as possible. That's who we all are. That's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and since we as individuals typically seek to get the highest return for what we offer and what we offer might be our time it might be our skill or it might be our money we it makes perfect sense that when you have a corporation you want to do the same thing so that's why anytime you're talking about what the purpose of a corporation including and especially a railroad corporation is here at the all aboard podcast we're going to tell you straight it is to make as much money as is possible legally uh 
So that's why it's there. And the U.S. has seen waves of diversification, and the most prominent of that came in the 1960s and the 1970s in what we call the conglomerate era. Now, I'm sure you've heard or you've seen this before, and let me put this on the screen for you. Uh, And, you know, as always, what's going to happen? My tech is going to mess up, but it's okay. Let me put this on the screen for you. There you go. Do I want YouTube TV? No, thanks. I don't want YouTube TV. But you see this. You've seen this logo, the Paramount logo. And you see at the bottom it says a Gulf and Western company. Well, Gulf and Western was one of the large conglomerates that had operated for quite some time. And the idea was simple. You had one company that did one thing. And then as time went on, rather than saying, well, let's make that one thing bigger, they put their money into just about anything. So let me give you an idea of what else they had. Uh, guaranteed Parts, General Products Corporation, Furniture City Plating Company, REA Auto Supply, Winkler Auto Parts, Rocket Jet Engineering, and of course, as you just saw, Paramount Pictures. So that gives you an idea of what diversification was in the conglomerate era. Another example of diversification in the conglomerate era comes to us from uh, a corporation you've probably heard a lot of, LTV, especially in the railroad context. And LTV, you might know that because one of the, and yes, any opportunity we get to put attractive women on the screen, we're going to put attractive women on the screen. You're saying, well, wait a minute, why do you have a stewardess and a Braniff 727? Well, that's because uh, LTV at one point owned Braniff Airlines. It also owned LTV Steel, and it owned a variety of other businesses. And the whole idea of LTV, uh, incorporated by a man named James Ling, uh, at Ling Timco Vought, which is what LTV stood for, was simply diversification. Let's just put as much money out there as possible. Let's put it into as many businesses as possible, and let's run them. What ended up happening, though, and the reason why this collapsed, is because an LTV went through a variety of travails. It was up, it was down, and sadly, it seemed like it was down more than it was up, uh, was that a lot of investors would come out and have two problems. Problem number one is that when you have a conglomerate, it is often very difficult to value the entire company. That's why when we talk about private equity firms today, they don't present themselves as one company that controls all these different ones. They take money from their investors and put them into different funds, which themselves invest in the company. So one fund might have investments in five or six different companies the same way your stock market portfolio might have investments in five or six different companies. Uh, But the entire private equity firm is simply just a small group of people that manage the financial assets there as opposed to what LTV was doing and, uh, and Gulf and Western where you'd have one company that controlled all of it and the only thing that you could do in most cases was buy the stock of the parent company. So that's why this declined. It was difficult to value the different parts of the company and then value the whole. And then the other was that you had to ask a question seriously. To what extent does it make sense, for example, to take a company that started out doing uh, what was then called electronics and then they're going to fly a full own a full service airline and they're going to own insurance and they're going to make steel? I mean, maybe you could see a little bit of uh, a reason that steel and wire could be part of it 
But at the end of the day, there's really no common thread stringing any of that together. So it was difficult to do. But that, uh, and we will just go on over, uh, another example of that that we certainly should not pass up is one company that still really could consider itself a conglomerate, and that is Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. And what does Berkshire Hathaway own? Well, none other than BNSF. So if you think about it, the same people who own BNSF, the railroad, also own Precision Cast Parts, which makes parts for airplanes. They have a major stake in Coca-Cola. They have a, which is partly going to this, the Schweppes ginger ale that's here in my Penn Central mug that I'm mixing with the <laughs> Maker's Mark 46. Uh, they own a, st- a very substantial section of that. They own a very large stake in Goldman Sachs. At one point, had control of Solomon Brothers after it had taken over Fibro and then managed to run itself into bankruptcy or near bankruptcy. So you get an idea. That's one conglomerate that is still going. Uh, but the conglomerate era, it ended, and in the 1980s, you saw a lot of this tend to break up. But the reason why railroads got involved in this is because railroads have very strong cash flows, and that was the case even during the regulated period. But the key to running a business isn't so much how much money that you can bring in on the top line, it's how much you can hold on to. And so in the regulated period, profits, which is the money you can hold on to, were very low. And that's for several reasons. First of all, because rates were high. So that was driving a lot of railroad business to freight business to trucking. And of course, we all know, you saw the inside of that 727, the beautiful stewardesses they had, all the romance of air travel, and oh, by the way, the regulated airline rates, that was driving a lot of people away from the trains as well. Not to mention the fact that a lot of the service being provided by some railroads was poor. Uh, So All this together gave the railroads very little incentive to improve their service because even if you offered the best service there was, the rates were still regulated. So at best, returns were stagnant for years, and at worst, they were low or non-existent. So what did the railroads do? They sought other businesses that could provide better returns. And let's go through some examples. The first one I want to get to is Northwestern Industries. And you're thinking, Northwestern Industries? Yeah, Phil, that sounds kind of familiar, right? Yeah, it is. That's because Northwestern Industries came from none other than our old friends at the Chicago and Northwestern Railway. And it wouldn't be a uh, all-aboard podcast if I didn't at least get some EMDE units on the screen. So you have some of Chicago and Northwestern's E8s there. Some of those are models. But also, if you notice, the one that looks like it's painted for Illinois Central, that is a former Chicago and Northwestern unit. That has been donated to the Illinois Railroad Museum. So you can go out to IRM and see uh, former Iowa Pacific 515. And that was also its Chicago and Northwestern, its second Chicago and Northwestern number while you're there. But the Chicago and Northwestern formed Northwest and North, Northwest, Northwest Industries. And it controlled Acme Boot, Velsicol Chemical, which, and Velsicol was a, um, a agricultural chemical company. And one more company that you might be familiar with, probably use them once in a while, and it is these guys here, Fruit of the Loom. 
I told you we're going to do everything we can to get beautiful women on the screen. But they controlled Fruit of the Loom, and actually Northwest Industries stayed around for quite some time after they sold the railroad and made it employee-owned in the early 1970s. And Ben Heineman, who came to the Chicago Northwestern from the Minneapolis and St. Louis, he stayed with it until the 1980s until he sold the entire company. So it's a very unique story of how someone, uh, an attorney, became a railroader, became the head of a conglomerate and pretty much left uh, left the business world at its height by finally selling Northwest Industries to Farley Industries. But that gives you an idea of what happened there with the Chicago Northwestern and the diversification that they embraced. The next is Illinois Central Industries. And they had, of course, as we talked about, um, and we'll also include a link in the description to this, Pepsi Americas, which was previously the Whitman Corporation, and the Whitman Corporation was Illinois Central Industries. Again, another effort to say, increase the amount of returns the overall corporation was able to generate. So they went out, they purchased a lot of businesses. One of them was Whitman's Chocolates. That's how Illinois Central Industries became Whitman. Eventually, just like Northwest Industries, Illinois Central Industries would also go on to do what? Spin off the railroad because they said, well, you know what? Railroading was nice, but it's not really generating the type of returns we want or that we can get by selling chocolate. So they went, they did that and then eventually purchased several Pepsi distributorships and that created Pepsi Americas, which until it was acquired by PepsiCo itself was the largest distributor of Pepsi in the country. So undoubtedly, if you're over 10 years old and you were drinking Pepsi, you were in fact patronizing what was left of Illinois Central Industries for many years. The next one I would like to cover uh, is Burlington Northern. And Burlington Northern, uh, you know, relatively plain vanilla here. They had Burlington Resources, which was Timberlands, oil, and gas. So that was, of course, very lucrative. Eventually that was sold and it became part of uh, ConocoPhillips, and that was in the early, either early to mid-2000s. But it was something that, quite frankly, I had forgotten uh, that that was part of the Burlington Northern. And if you look back, you can see some similarities, or at least some of the flavor in the logo. And remember that Burlington Northern, having been formed out of the Great Northern, Northern Pacific, Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, um, Spokane, Portland, and Seattle, and then later on taking over the Frisco, had a lot as a result of those carriers of natural resources that were available to be exploited, and certainly the railroad did that. The last one I want to cover uh, in this is everybody's favorite when they're talking about diversification, and that is the Penn Central. The Pennsylvania New York Central Transportation Company, a.k.a. the company that we know uh, as being probably the biggest at what at the time was the biggest bankruptcy in history and what did Penn Central invest in well here's one example six flags uh and that actually dates not to the Penn Central but the Pennsylvania Railroad so they had six flags Buckeye pipeline which served JFK airport and still does to this day Strick which made highway trailers Madison Square Garden the Waldorf Astoria and one other that I'm a big fan of and I'll uh, definitely show you this because if I didn't, I'd be committing journalistic mal, excuse me, rail enthusiast malpractice. And that is none other than the Hyatt Grand Central. Now, those of you who are uh, 
who have been following me on this podcast, you know why I'm a fan of the Hyatt Grand Central, because, of course, it was developed by none other than Donald J. Trump uh, long before he became president, but Donald J. Trump nonetheless. And the story there is the Penn Central after it had gone bankrupt and had its rail properties, majority of its rail properties taken uh, to become part of Conrail. They were selling off properties and reorganizing, which they successfully did as a as a conglomerate, interestingly enough, in the 1970s into the 1980s. But one of the things they did is they ultimately sold what was, I believe, the Hotel Commodore to Donald Trump, and he redid it and made it look like that. So if you're in New York City and you're right by Grand Central Terminal, you see that. Uh, you'll notice that it has an interesting look to it. It's all glass covered, but it actually dates somewhere to the 1920s and didn't at all look like that when it got started. But the whole area up and down Park Avenue, that was all New York Central property. That's where track was. They sold a lot of that in another aspect, another example of diversification where you had a railroad effectively become a real estate firm. They owned the, uh, at one time, the Pan Am building, which is another example of where they were working very closely with one of their rivals because Buckeye Pipeline, as I mentioned, they took and still do take jet fuel to JFK. And if you think about it, uh, there's a pretty interesting thing that Penn Central did there, Pennsylvania Railroad, excuse me, and of course Penn Central did, because while the passenger train was dying on one hand, they were literally fueling the competition on the other. Uh, and also owning the Pan Am building. Now, Pan Am in those days was not a competition to uh, domestic rail transportation, but it does go to show the interesting links that happen when you have diversification. But the last one that I wanted to talk about, and to me is the most interesting, and what spurred this entire discussion, actually comes to us from none other than the Norfolk Southern Railway. So, I know when you think of Norfolk Southern and you say Piedmont, you're thinking, well, Phil, of course, we're talking about the Piedmont division, right? From uh, Washington, D.C. area all the way to the Atlanta area. But no, actually, Norfolk Southern owned 19% of Piedmont Airlines. And Piedmont Airlines was a largely southeastern air carrier uh, that the NS had acquired an interest in and actually submitted an offer to take the entire company private in 1987 until it lost out to U.S. Air. Now, at the same time, Norfolk Southern also owned 100% of a company that I know you're definitely very, very familiar with because you've seen their trucks going down the road. You may have even used them when you are moving uh, from one place to the other, and that's North American Van Lines. They had purchased them from another company that had been diversifying, and that was PepsiCo. So yes, PepsiCo, uh, somewhat related eventually to Illinois Central Industries. Well, at one time, they owned North American Van Lines and sold it to Norfolk Southern. Now, I want you to think about it. When you put those two together, where you would have a railroad, an airline, and one more thing that I want to add, because this was certainly active by then, and this is Triple Crown, which uh, is still a subsidiary of Norfolk Southern and still has a very, very small now uh, uh, footprint of road railer traffic. And road railers, for those who are not familiar with them, this was an effort that started in the 1960s to put a truck trailer on railroad wheels, but without having to use a flat car or a well car, which is what a lot of them are carried in. So 
this actually carries the highway wheels with the trailer and it also has railroad wheels and what happens there's several different designs some where the railroad wheels stay on the railroad and others where the railroad wheels will go with the trailer as it goes down the road uh which turned out was not a very good idea because that meant you added weight and then is now um the maximum weight that you're allowed on the highway is 80,000 pounds for a full truck. So that's also, you know, going back to our earlier discussion about how much you could fit into a truck. Well, a lot of times it's been said that shippers will weigh out before they cube out. And that weight on the national, the U S highway system is generally the constraint that prevents truckers from being more competitive with rail. Um, but if you were to add Triple Crown and its road railer network with North American van lines, which while it is largely a moving company uh, that uses semi-trucks, there is no reason why it could not have become more of a fully-fledged uh, common carrier trucker. And then you add Piedmont Airlines plus Norfolk Southern's extensive coverage of the southeastern and midwestern United States. Keep in mind they went as far into the southeast as Palatka, Florida, went up to the Virginia Beach, Norfolk area, Washington, D.C., and then as far north as Detroit and Buffalo, New York, because keep in mind they did come to Buffalo on the former Wabash, then going as far west as Omaha, Nebraska, until 1992, and of course into New Orleans. If you overlay that network with an air network, and you overlay that air network with a trucking network, and you have the ability to now offer triple crown uh, road railer service where a lot of those trucks can just very easily go right from a train onto the onto a tractor tractor trailer and get to a dock you would have had as a friend of mine put it a comprehensive transportation system that blanketed the southeast and also midwest but let's really think of this in reality it would have been nationwide and it's interesting to think that Norfolk Southern would have been the only system that was able to offer that much in the way of freight movement. Because remember, while Piedmont was, of course, a passenger airline, our passenger airlines do carry substantial amounts of air freight. So you would have everything from your relatively small packages, FedEx, UPS, that sort of uh, lading being able to move in an airliner to slightly heavier freight to full truckload freight, the triple crown of North American van lines would take, and then rail carload freight that Norfolk Southern would take, in addition to being able to move the truckload freight intermodally in a variety of ways. It makes you wonder if Norfolk Southern may have become the leading transportation company in the entire world, much less just the uh, United States. And to be fair, they were not the only ones who were looking for opportunities like that. And keep in mind, at the same time, CSX did something similar. They had CMX trucking, uh, and they also spent substantial amounts of money to acquire sea land and build up a set of terminals all across the world, which ultimately became CSX World Terminals before all of it was spun off. And as with Norfolk Southern, have gotten to railroading. And the uh, epilogue on this is that 
ultimately what happened was Norfolk Southern ended up investing a lot of the money that it had because it sold off North American van lines and then, of course, ended up giving up its stock in Piedmont and the U.S. air acquisition to purchase Conrail. And it's an open question if it would have been a better idea to become that comprehensive transportation network, assuming they could have wrested Piedmont from U.S. air or to acquire Conrail and expand the rail franchise. I'll leave that question up to you. Hope you'll answer in the comments. But before I go, I want to do one more thing about diversification, my favorite diversification fact of all time. And uh, it's actually not railroad related, but I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, that is the original ESPN logo. And you're thinking, well, Phil, why are you talking about ESPN? Just stick to the issues. Of course, just had... Um, Sadly, the Dallas Cowboys, although I'm a Jet fan, I'm a Cowboys sympathizer, I'll say that. Um, that is the original ESPN logo. Notice the colors. Why do I say notice the colors? Because I want you to see what company that gave them those colors. And here you are. It is Getty Petroleum. Uh, Getty Petroleum had a lot of money in the 1970s because of the Arab oil embargo that had driven up the price of all fuels all petroleum fuels substantially. So Getty had money, and then a couple of guys, one of whom is pollster, famous pollster Scott Rasmussen and his father, they had an idea for a sports network. So they went to Getty Oil, who had money, and said, hey, would you be willing to back us? And it turned out they were willing to back them. And that's how Getty Oil got to be in the sports business. And that also set the stage for ESPN, of course, coming becoming part of ABC. But I wanted to add that because that's just a really interesting example of diversification, even if it doesn't come to us from the railroad. So I want to see you this Saturday and this Sunday on January 20th and 21st at the Richmond Speedway Complex for the Greenberg's Great American Train and Toy Show. We will have that linked in the description. And we will also have that on our website, allthingstrains.com. Go check out the podcast, like, subscribe. Remember, I'm proud to have each and every one of you part of the Rail Barons crew, and we will see you down the main line. Have a great day.